With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... can I please have your attention? Dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. I will stop talking in in 1.5 speed um, in just a second. Uh, uh, I, I I had to race here from a meeting, and I'm I dropped into my seat, and I immediately started uh, jibber jabbering and talking with my old friend Tevi Troy, who has returned uh, to this podcast um, once again, and. Um, he just so listeners know, one of the reasons why we're going to talk a bunch about the presidency is that he has put on he's putting on a um, big highfalutin conference about the presidency at the bipartisan policy center. And that's going to be going on a little later today. Uh, he'll tell us how you can like read the. Or watch or listen or whatever to it after the fact. Um, and uh Tevi, welcome back to The Remnant. Thanks, Jonah. I hope things are going well from your MSM CNN perch and uh, bring greetings from there, I hope. Uh, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, I actually asked uh, Ramesh Panuru, our mutual friend Ramesh Panuru, now editor of National Review. Uh, he, I saw him this morning and he was like, uh, uh, welcome to CNN. And I was like, oh, that's right. I forgot you were, you were there. And I, and I asked him, I mean, this part of the meeting wasn't off the record. I asked him, how do you put up with all the, you know, the the hate and and trollishness from everybody about being at CNN? And and Ramesh said, "Well, it helped that I didn't start out as a figure of hate to begin with." <laughs> <laughs> Which is a devastating and devastatingly fair um all at the same time, but um it's nice to have friends. Uh, one day I'll find them. Um <laughs> so, uh why don't you just sort of just so you know we're bring listeners up to speed about what your frame of mind is at. Um, what is this conference thing you're doing and why are you doing it? All right, great. Well, we are about one year into the Biden presidency and what a presidency it's been. And we are on the cusp of President's Day. And I had this insight, and uh, I got to give some credit to our old friend, Les Linkowski, for talking this through with me. But there's this idea that we've had four people have had the presidency in this new century, meaning Bush, Obama, Trump, and now Biden. And each of them has changed the parameters and expanded the powers of the presidency in ways that were unprecedented by each individual, but in toto have really created a huge shift in what the presidency is. So much so that I would argue, and this conference is going to argue, that the presidency that Joe Biden now inhabits is much bigger and much different from the presidency that Bill Clinton left at the end of the 20th century. Uh, why don't you give us some, for instances, about how they expanded or changed it? Yeah, absolutely. So George W. Bush, for whom I worked, as you know, he faces the 9-11 disaster and terrorist attacks, and he really creates this this homeland security state that did not exist beforehand. He also is aggressive in his use of signing statements to define what is passed by Congress in ways that, I would say, alienated the congressional Democrats. I wouldn't say it's uh, unconstitutional or anything inappropriate, or our friend Shannon Coffin would, would jump down my throat. But um, but but it did expand what the president had been doing to to some degree. And then you have Obama come, and Obama is frustrated by Congress or for understandable reasons because they were trying not to do what he wanted them to do. Uh, and then there are things where he says that he cannot do them constitutionally, like the thing with the, the Dreamers. And then he later says, I have a pen and a phone presidency and tries to do those very things that he said were unconstitutional. So he sees more executive power than I think had previously been seen. 
And then Trump, well, I mean, anyone who listens to this podcast knows that there are manifold ways in which Trump has uh, been a norm-breaking president, but also uh, Jonathan Rauch wrote a long piece in The Atlantic and I'm listing many norms that, that Trump broke. But, but Trump clearly wanted to see if he could run a unilateral presidency because he also was frustrated by Congress. And I think as part of this conversation, we're going to have to get into what Congress has done and what Congress does not do and Yuval Levin's argument about Congress ceding a lot of its authorities. And then you have Joe Biden who comes in, and not only does he try to do some of the Obama stuff in terms of doing things that he knows are unconstitutional, but using mechanisms of the executive branch to do it, like using OSHA, for example, to enforce a vaccine mandate. But I also think that by trying to be LBJ or FDR with a much narrower majority than either one of them had, he's really trying to bring a parliamentary approach to the presidency and with him as prime minister that has that has existed previously. So if you add up all those changes in the presidency over this 20-year period, we now have a presidency that has changed more in 20 years under four people than I would argue it has changed in any period in the last 200 years other than perhaps in Roosevelt's presidency. All right, so let me, let me, let me try out an idea on you and see what you think. Um, I would argue that some of that and again, I'm thinking about this on the fly. Some of that, and I think you're 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 right about the the trends, right? And and um, but I would argue that that a lot of this is because of Bill Clinton's presidency. That prior to, I mean, I mean, there's always there's always some culture war stuff in the presidency, but like part of the problem was is that the culture war was gelling into a recognizable thing in the late eighties, early nineties in ways that, you know, it wasn't in the seventies. It wasn't clear cut. It didn't map over partisan lines the way it so recognizably does now the whole red States versus blue States thing. And, um, and it was in part because of Bill Clinton, you know, the first boomer president, um, and his place in the culture, in, in, in the culture, you know, this sort of draft evading, guy who's sort of half sort of uh hippie half guy gaming the meritocratic system to get ahead who also has like a uh, less than ideal uh moral framework in terms of his private life um that kind of galvanizes the right to, to lean in even more to culture war stuff even though you know clinton was fairly in many ways more moderate than a lot of people want to remember including me sometimes and after Clinton, the and after the impeachment, the left gets galvanized into culture war stuff too, and you have then presidents become avatars of the culture war in ways that they never have before, and that feeds into this parliamentary thing, which, as you know, I've been ranting about for a while, um, where each side is convinced that they are representative of and the re, re, repository of the real majority and that they are the legitimate holders of power and so that when they get into power they feel like they should be able to impose their view willy-nilly even if they only have mar narrow margins and so anyway i would argue that it comes out of the tumult of the the clinton years because that i think is what flipped the switch and turned the presidency into a culture war um, in symbol, you know, in ways that it really hadn't been before. So I, I don't at all disagree that Clinton sets the stage for much of this. I think the expansion of powers is really something that we've seen more of in these 21st century presidents. You know, I'm think I was trying to think of ways that Clinton really changed executive power. I mean, the, one of the things that people write about is the uh, Mexican peso crisis, something mm -hmm. creative and innovative in the use of uh, executive power. But I, I don't think that that is of a piece with the other things I'm talking about. And in, in many ways, you read a paper that Kristen Soltis Anderson wrote about the polling of the 21st century presidency. And she argues that presidents of this century, the 21st century, really can't get above 50% an approval rating. That changes the way they go about governing. Whereas Clinton, in some ways, was of the earlier model, the Reagan model, where he could aspire to 60%, and in fact was close to 60% approval when he left, even after the Monica Lewinsky scandal and even after the culture war stuff that he ignited that you so correctly cite. So Clinton sets the stage for much of this, 
but he operates within a more Reaganite framework of what the presidency is. And then I think in the 21st century, it's been a little bit more Katie bar the door, bar the door in large part, I think, because some of the crises that emerged in the 21st century, 9-11 and the financial collapse and Hurricane Katrina and uh, Obama faced so many crises. At one point, he said, who the heck thought we were going to have to deal with pirates? And then obviously, we now have the uh, uh, coronavirus on- ongoing situation. So I think the crises of the 21st century have led to the American people looking to the presidency for answers more than they did in, let's say, the relatively calm, peaceful, and prosperous 1990. Okay, I want to get to that, your substantive point in a second, but since you're saying you're trying to think of ways in which Clinton expanded the presidency, I got one, other than, the, you know, of course, the, that, that dark time in our lives, which the Mexican peso crisis, which, you know, sometimes I just even mentioning pesos makes me shudder. But, um... Uh, and I will concede up front that it actually hasn't led to any of the problems that I probably got too worked up about 25 years ago, but it was Clinton's legal team that invented this thing called the protective function privilege, which basically said that secret service agents could not testify to criminal or other activity, um, in court, uh, even if subpoenaed or whatever, um, because of this, the, the job that they have to do as, as, as bodyguards for the president, I got the art, I get the argument about why you would want that at the same time, it kind of turns the secret service into a praetorian guard. Um, and, um, and the idea that sworn law enforcement officials should not, uh, feel compelled to tell the truth, um, or, or, or say, you know, even under, you know, court order or something like that strikes me as, as a, as a admittedly now minor seeming expansion of government power. Uh, I'll think about more, but on your substantive work point about how both parties, presidents now feel that they can't get much more than 50% is the reason why they can't get 50% because they, they think they can't get 50% more than 50%. And insofar as this is a constant theme on this podcast. We've talked about this before, I believe, either offline or on, on, on The Remnant. Why the hell, you know, Biden can't do sister soldier moments, right? You know, why Biden can't find some perfectly crappy, symbolic sap <laughs> you know, or issue. And, and like weekly, it feels like there's an opportunity that where Clinton or where Biden could do what Clinton routinely did, which is signal to the middle that he is not owned and ca- and held captive by the extreme base of his party and he just refuses to do it. I would argue that would be in his political interest, but clearly they think it's not for some one reason or another. So I mean which is it? Is it that they that that they they think it's not worth doing because there's no chance of expanding their coalition or um or are they not doing it because they just can't, it's a failure of imagination? It's a good question. I'm not sure I know the answer. I, I think it is a failure in that they should do it. And I think Biden would be wise to do it, but he's clearly incapable of doing it. Uh, but I also think about my, my former boss, George W. Bush, and they had a very well-defined strategy for that 2004 election, which, as you know, is the only time the Republicans have gotten a majority of the popular vote in the 21st century. And the strategy was hold your base, meaning white evangelicals, basically, and expand slightly in the areas where you are likely to lose. So the black vote for Bush went from 9 to 11 percent. The Hispanic vote for Bush went from 37 to 43 percent. The Jewish vote, on which I worked a lot, went from 20 to 25 percent. And because of those small expansions in groups that tend to vote Democrat, they still voted Democrat, but they didn't vote Democrat in the same margin. And then you added it with Bush really solidly holding on to his base, and that led to Bush's election victory. So he wasn't looking for a 60% or 70% president. I don't think he would have objected to it, but his election strategy was about holding base and expanding slightly outward. Uh, if you look at uh, Biden, I mean, I, I, it seems to me the Democrats have gone a little um, nuts on this whole red state, blue state model, which is we're just going to write off the red states or anybody who thinks like a red state or, you know, I was listening to a talk by Amy Chua where she talks about how anyone in her law school classes who says anything 
vaguely pro Western civilization or 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 pro hard work or any anything like that, they get labeled as FedSoc adjacent. Right. <laughs> and I just love that concept. But this idea that you know anybody who doesn't hold completely with the left's perspective is to be written off and we need to win by only holding our own. It, it seems to be the way he's governing. Again, I don't think it's wise. Uh, it certainly isn't the Barack Obama 2004 Democratic Convention speech that, that made his career, but it, it, it seems to be the way they're going. So value judgment, is the increased importance of the presidency a good thing or a bad thing? Well, as a presidential historian, I'm a huge fan of the presidency and, <laughs> and focus on its importance. But look, you know, we've had these arguments about co-equal and mm-hmm. you know, whether the word co-equal branches of power actually means co-equal. But the, the truth is, in our separation of powers, each branch is supposed to have defined powers. So let's not right. get into the co-equal debate, but there are defined powers. And it seems to me that Congress, as our friend Yuval has noted, is ceding many of its defined powers to the presidency. Because it just can't hack it, it can't make decisions, it can't legislate in ways that, that it wants. And you know, it used to be Congress would compromise. I mean, Ted Kennedy, but well to the left of me, and I'm not necessarily a fan, but he believed in compromise because it would get him more of what he wanted over time. And he, you know, there was the famous uh, Kennedy Orrin Hatch coalition. The two of them would make these compromises, and the left would grumble about his friendship with Hatch, and the right would grumble about Hatch's friendship w- w- with Kennedy. But but they made compromises. Uh, now it seems to me that if you compromise on Capitol Hill, it's kind of a, a, a dirty word. And I, you know, I know many times you've uh, uh, criticized C-SPAN, I guess the transparency aspect. I, I don't know if it's just that, but it does seem to me that Congress has trouble coming to decisions on very complex things. So they cede it to the entity that can do these things unilaterally, which is the executive branch through the regulatory state. Yeah, I'm, look, I'm, I'm all in favor of blaming Congress for a lion, for the lion's share of the problems with the presidency, that that's fine with me. I mean, like presidency because it revolves around one person. You can you can always have more confidence in the predictability and the enduring um, nature of one individual politician's ambition, right? You know, people who are presidents are going to be ambitious for their presidency, and they don't have to like make apologies for that because that's the nature of the beast in some ways. And so when there's, when Congress abdicates responsibility and political power and creates a vacuum, um, I don't like that the president leaps in and tries to suck up those responsibilities. But I think that is sort of, that is downstream of the truly morally culpable institution, which is Congress for letting that happen in the first place. You know, we said this a million times around here, but like, the founding fathers did not anticipate that Congress would not be a jealous guardian of its institutional interests. And you don't, you can't have an expansive presidency without Congress letting it happen and they let it happen. So I'm fine with blaming Congress for why the presidency kind of sucks. Um, no offense to the, you know, your abiding scholarly passions. Um, I do think that it is, let's put it this way. There's nothing inherently wrong with a parliamentary system there's a lot that is wrong with a par with with trying to do things like we have a parliamentary system when we do not have one <laughs> and um uh and you create expectations for what a president can do that they cannot actually do um uh, when people run as if we live in a parliamentary system promising the moon and then they get into office and it turns out that they can't deliver and all these things they say they're going to do on day one because the president does not have a prime minister's powers, um, never mind a king's powers, you get a certain amount of cynicism and frustration and radicalization of the population of the voters because they're like, you told us this was going to be easy, and now it turns out you can't do it. And presidents, newly elected presidents, are never going to say, oh, well, I lied to you. I said I could do all these things, and I can't. So what they end up doing is they end up blaming uh, you know, sinister, unseen forces, millionaires and billionaires, the egg council, whatever, or they end up blaming the other party for their obstructionism, even though the other party was elected not to do whatever the head of the other party wanted it to do. And so you get a lot of the nonsense and, and bile that is in our system precisely because of our expectations of the presidency do not match up with the actual legal job description of the presidency. 
So let me get back to your, your previous question, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. Again, obviously, that's the argument I was making that uh, it's, it's partially Congress's fault. But w- whether this is a good thing or a bad thing, I think that the more potent the president becomes, the more polarizing the president becomes. And that prevents the president from being a figure of national unity in times mm-hmm. of crisis. So if we are attacked by some foreign entity, is it going to be a situation where we all rally around the flag and the president says we're going to do this and do that and the people are going to follow? Or it's going to be, well, half the people said, well, I, you know, I warned you, you're going to do, this was going to happen and, and, and you didn't listen. Or half the people say, well, I'm kind of, kind of sympathetic to that foreign government that's attacked us because they, they make the trains run on time. And neither one is good. And I think if you can get the presidency back to a place where he can not be completely above the fray, because I think that's, that's unrealistic, but where he can reassert his place within the three branches and make the case for why our legitimate systems of, of government should function the way, the way should, they should function, and we can get behind the president in times of crisis, even if not every minute, you know, obviously people are always going to grumble. There have been unpopular presidents uh, since, since the beginning. But if you can get the president to a, a kind of better, less omnipotent place, perhaps, I mean, it's, it's sort of a, the, the, um, the myth of omnipotence without actually having the omnipotence that I think is what's so frustrating. It makes the partisans of the president angry because he can't do everything he wants. And it makes the other side angry because he's trying to do everything. He wants. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. And, and your point about the more power you give institution, the more it is seen as through a partisan prism is true too. I mean, this is the argument people like you and me have been making for a long time about why our Supreme court fights are so ugly is when you give the Supreme court, which is another institution that Congress has outsourced its power to, such an outsized role in our political life. Well, of course we're going to have, you know, the equivalent of presidential campaigns for, for Supreme court nominees. Um, at least the ones are that could change the balance of the court. And I think, you know, that's not healthy for the society. I mean, I, 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 obviously I prefer a conservative capital C Supreme court, but I also prefer a conservative lowercase C Supreme court that is sort of out of the mix more often than not. And it lets the branches, um, sort this stuff out on their own. Um, but that's, that's not the world we live in and which is why we can't have nice things. Let, let, let me just say one other point on this, which is the conference that I'm running. I don't just have papers on, Oh, the presidency expanded this power, the presidency expanded that power. Cause I think that would, could be a little boring if it was just that one note. Uh, but I've actually brought in some historians to look at specific presidents and see how they would view the presidency today. And so there's one paper on the Kennedys, not just JFK, but all the Kennedys who sought this office. Uh, And the office that they sought is probably now different than the office (laughs) that it is today. And one thing that this paper argues is that uh, Teddy Kennedy would have salivated over the presidency even more because of the vast regulatory powers that the presidency has. On the other hand, I have a paper by Amity Schles, who talks about Calvin Coolidge, who tried to change the trajectory and reduce the powers of the federal government and in the process reduce the powers of the presidency, which is not the natural inclination of someone who inhabits a role. So I think my point in doing this conference is to talk about the phenomenon, to see what happened, but also to say this isn't inevitable. We can make choices. Our leaders can make choices. Things can go in different directions than you expect. And sometimes if uh, politicians are wise, they can go in better directions. Yeah. And look, I mean, look, I I, I know you're being uh, jocular. When you said, you know, as a presidential historian that you, 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 you love our emphasis on the president, but like we could deflate the presidency a great deal and it would still be an interesting thing to talk about and write about, and it would get more than its fair share of, of attention in American life. Um, but I just, I think it is a fundamentally unhealthy thing when we, we, we talk as if the head of one branch of one level of government in this country is in effect has a magical effect on the course of 335 million lives. Um, and there is a certain amount of, I think it was Kevin Williamson is, you know, argues there's a certain amount of idolatry that has creeped into presidential politics that I think is unhealthy. Yeah, look, when I f- chose to focus on the presidency in the early 1990s, I was, I was picking a growth stock, right? So, I mean, the, the presidency has gotten more important. But that said, 
idolatry is a bad thing, either in religion, in my personal opinion, or, <laughs> or in uh, American politics. And I just don't think we need to have a presidency whose every move determines the mood of all 335 million Americans at every moment, which is something we certainly saw in the last presidency, where you know, whatever Trump did that morning would get either people raging with anger or you know, bubbly with happiness. And you know, it's, it's one person. It's one person doing things that sometimes have an effect on you, but oftentimes are just symbolic and do not have an effect on you. So yeah, we, we could deflate it a bit, and I would still have plenty of running room to discuss the presidency on the remnant and elsewhere. Let's get punditry adjacent, um, uh, as it were. Uh, the Fair to say that the president's relationship with the media has changed over the time. Which is which is responsible for the changing dynamic of that relationship changes with the media or changes with the presidency? I think they're of a piece. The, you know, the media is clearly more aggressive, certainly with some presidents more than others. Uh, but, but the presidents feel like they can bash the press with, with more in, impunity. And you, I shared with you the Washington examiner piece I wrote about presidents barking at the press. I would argue that both Trump and Biden have this tendency to bark at the press and to do it relatively frequently, certainly more frequently than most predecessors, but they do it for different reasons. Trump did it because it's part of his brand, that the media hates him, he hates the media, and it makes his voters happy to see him fighting with the press and, and putting them in their place and you know, calling Jim Acosta bad names, which again, I think is inappropriate for a president to do, but that, that's what he did, and he thought he was, he was reaching to his, his voters in doing so. Biden, I think, is the opposite. He kind of expects the press to be nicer to him Mm -hmm. because, in in truth, the press usually is nicer to Democratic presidents and Democratic politicians. And he's kind of offended or taken aback that they ask him tough questions sometimes. And so that's why he will call Peter Ducey uh, an SOB, which I thought was highly inappropriate. Or um, he's got that interaction where with Philip Wegman, where he makes that really snarky response about whether Philip Wegman is an English major and don't journalists uh, get into the business to understand English. And obviously he under, misunderstood him about Bull Connor and uh, Robert E. Lee when he clearly didn't misunderstand him. Right. So it was Jefferson Davis, not Robert E. Lee. I apologize. I, I agree with that analysis, but I, I think there's a commonality there that that is important as well, which is that I think both guys are, plagued by a tremendous amount of intellectual insecurity and um and they both snap back at um any question that 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 scratches at that scab um i think biden's is you know Bi- you know biden's is in some ways i don't know if it's more well documented but it's it's you know it's been obvious for a lot longer um, uh, you know, there's that famous video of him or that famous scene when he was running in what, in 88, where some voter insults him about something or other, um, saying he's not qualified or, or whatever. And Biden just loses it. Uh, I'm, I'm smarter than you. Dan Sight's smarter than you. I have a higher IQ than you. And then he rattles off like three dozen things from his academic career most of which are just made up, not true, I mean, just, right? like, yeah, just flatly not true. But it's like, I was the first one selected to be the editor of this. And I was the number one in my class at that and blah, blah, blah. And you can see it in these, like even um, Lester Holt, when he asked about, you know, you said inflation was transit- transitory. Biden restrained himself a certain a bit, certain amount by, you know, but he still was like, yeah, oh, you're being a wise guy. Like, no, like it was a you totally said, legit tra- question. totally legit question. You said inflation was transitory. It's been around for a while. It's not going away. That's like totally, you know, not even remotely like a clever question. It's just like a good question. And, um, and he hates, he, he loves, he is committed to the idea that he is always right, that he was prophetic. I think that's why he pulled out of Afghanistan the way he did is because he lost that argument 10 years ago and he feels like he was going to vindicate himself and instead he beclowned himself. Um, and Trump, you know, Trump always had this thing where he, he had the, the, these fantastic tells. It was like, you know, and so does Biden. Biden says, I'm, 
I'm not joking or I'm not making this up or, you know, like, or I mean this literally not, you know, and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Trump would, would say things like, I have the best words, you know, these sort of brick Tamlin like declarations. And, um, and it was because he was aware that he doesn't. And he was like, I have the best words. I could use these fancy words, but I'm not going to. It's like, I could bring, you know, you know, my supermodel Canadian girlfriend to the prom, but I choose not to. And, um, and I think that's one of the things that defines both guys is, is that they have outsized views of their own intellect and ego. And when reporters press on it, they have a knee jerk response. I'm not going to sit here and defend the intellectual capabilities of either man or deny their intellectual insecurities, but let's play this out going forward. Let's mm-hmm. say Ron DeSantis becomes the next president, right? I would say that he's probably intellectually higher IQ than either of the other two people we're talking about. Fair. When he's, should he be president and the media come after him, he's going to go after them hammer and tongs because it's part of his brand. Yes. Not because he's intellectually insecure. Yeah. And so then what happens in, I don't know, 2028 or 2032 when the next Democrat comes in, you know, it's impossible to predict right now who that will be. But presumably, they will have the same mind frame of, I expect more from the press. And I, I, in, in that examiner piece, I say that Obama himself was not personally nasty to the press, but he did sick his press aides on yeah. them. I think it was smart of Obama not to get in the fray with the press, and smarter than Obama is, and then Biden is when Biden yells at them personally. But there is this sense of aggrievement by Democratic politicians when the press really gets in their face. No, I, look, I, again, I said I didn't disagree with any of the analysis. I just think there's one, that's one point of overlap. But no, I mean, like the best example of this, and Kyle Smith still has like the definitive piece on this from years ago, is Saturday Night Live, where Republican politicians expect to be made fun of by Saturday Night Live. And it's just like, well, of course they're going to make fun of us. A, we're politicians, and B, we're Republicans. This is like baked into the cake. But when Saturday Night Live was mean to, to, Democrats, they felt betrayed. And like, uh, what, what's this say? Lauren Michaels would talk about how Democratic politicians would say, well, I thought we were on the same team, you know, kind of thing. And the, the best quote, which Kyle has in this piece that he wrote years ago, um, was from the head of political joke writing at Silent Life for a long time. I don't know if it was decades, but a long time. His complaint about Obama was that there was just nothing you could make fun of. That it was like a smooth surface where you could find no finger holds, and no leverage whatsoever. It's like, that's on you. That is like a self-declaration that like you, you know, like if you don't think there's anything to make fun of about a politician, fairly or unfairly, because it's not like Saturday Night Live was always fair to politicians, then that's a sign of your worship rather than like, you know, the guy's perfection. And there was plenty of things you could make fun of Obama about. Look, the best example on this is George H.W. Bush. Right. Dana Carvey does that brutal, funny, but brutal yeah. imp- impersonation of him. And Bush loses the election. I'm not going to say because of the Carvey impersonation, but the Carvey it impersonation contributed contributed yeah. to a sense of Bush as kind of this yeah, yeah guy who just really doesn't have it together and is not completely intellectually coherent. And Christmas 1992, what does Bush do? He invites Dana Carvey to the White House to impersonate him and cheer up the depressed staff that is all going out there and looking for jobs. I mean, that, that's a man who can kind of step above it all and not take it personally and be very gracious. And I just don't think we have that in our recent president. Well, it's also funny because, like, I mean, again, Bob Dole didn't become president, but he, he tried. Um, and Norm MacDonald's impersonation of him was <laughs> really brutal and dark and hilarious. You know, who stole Bob Dole's peanut butter? But um, uh, Dole got along famously well with him. I'm wondering, like, in terms of the, the arc of the presidency, does the fact that like George H.W. Bush or Bob Dole for that matter, even though again, he wasn't president. Um, but people of George H.W. Bush's generation, first of all, it's, they, they come from an older patrician, more patrician understanding of the, of, of elite institutions and whatnot and leadership. But also if you've been shot up in Anzio, or if you, you know, had to parachute out of your burning, you know, plane in the, over the Pacific, maybe you don't take this political stuff nearly as personally. Um, you know, is that part of the factors that just culturally these guys are much more married to 
their emotions and their, you know, and their self-esteem in ways that, that the older generation, the more Gary Cooper types weren't. Yeah. Well, I hope the uh, answer to your analysis doesn't mean that we can only have world war two veterans as president because <laughs> we're going to be in trouble because that subset's run, running out. But let, let's look at, let's look a little more into George H W Bush, who I argue in, in my examiner piece was probably a little too nice to the press. He didn't push mm-hmm. back n- enough against them. I mean, he, you know, Maureen Dowd was eviscerating him regularly and he was writing mash notes to her all the time and, you know, being nice to her mom. Although he, he probably got the, he probably got the nomination in 88 in part because of going after Dan Rather. That's what I was getting. That's exactly where I was going to go. That in 1988, when he needs the nomination, he needs to show that he's a tough guy. He goes after Dan Rather, but in a strategic planned way. And Dan Rather wanted that interview to be recorded. And Roger Ailes, who helped advise Bush on his ambush of rather insisted that it be live so that CBS couldn't cut it the way they liked, which is right. a classic tactic of CBS news. They always do that, especially on 60 minutes. They cut it to make the Republican look as bad as possible or the businessman look as bad as possible. So Bush plans this attack on Dan Rather, really goes after Dan Rather, gets in his face. Dan Rather is taken aback, looks terrible. And Bush is shown as a tough guy and wins the nomination. Now, as president, I would argue that he was not as tough on the press, but he could do it when he needed to. And I think that's an interesting example. Yeah. Just as a side note for 60 minutes, anybody, any listeners out there who are planning on going on 60 minutes, uh, you could do what some people do and insist on bringing their own camera crew along as well. Um, or at the very least bring your own recording device. Uh, that way they have to be a little more fair about how they edit you because you can prove that they screwed you. Yeah, but by then, you know, 20 million people have watched 60 Minutes, and, you know, you could put out your recording to the 500 people in your Twitter feed, so. Yeah, no, I know, but it's like, it's at least an insurance policy, right? I mean, like, and it depends, it, it depends how egregious they're going to be with all of it, but still, um, but you're right. My only point is that 60 Minutes is legendary for selective editing of stuff, and I would never trust them. Um, since we're talking about the media and the presidency, one of my great frustrations of the Trump years, and listeners can probably guess about who some of the people I'm referring to, but I'll, 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 I'll keep it uh, as a general thing, that Trump would do something terrible. I'm going to stipulate that if people want evidence, you know, something indefensible, something bad, something troublesome, something worrisome, something uh, condemnable one way or the other. And the immediate response from certain people was, well, yeah, what about the New York Times? And, um, like, as you know, I come from a rich family tradition of bashing the New York times, but Sunday morning at the Goldberg house, exactly. the greatest <laughs> New York times bashing session ever over bagels and logs. <laughs> but the, the, the last I checked, the New York times is not president of the United States. And, you know, as JFK and our old boss, Ben Wattenberg used to say, you only have one president at a time and is is this tendency, and I, you get this tendency, I, you, you, I, once you start looking for it, you see it all over the place, where people want to make the media, and I think the media helps them enormously, or certainly certain outlets do, um, into a political player in a way that is somehow not a category error, right? I mean, like, whatever the New York Times does that is bad. And I think it does many bad things. It cannot launch nuclear weapons. Um, you know, it, uh, it cannot, you know, declare trade tariffs or any of these kinds of things and treating it as if like, as the, as, as the object of whataboutism is very frustrating to me, even though I'm perfectly fine with media criticism, I just don't think it, it, it satisfies as a debate response about what a given president is doing. I don't think what about is what the New York Times per se as a response to what a president does. I think the there is a lot that the New York Times does that is worthy of criticism. And you know, the New York Times sports section is basically the the, the woke sports section. I mean, it's uh, they allow their perspective to bleed into every aspect of their coverage, and and it, and it becomes frustrating to people who are longtime readers of it, such such as myself. So I'm not sure how to answer your question. I, I'm not sure either. It just it's not a response by a president to say, "Oh, well, the New York Times is bad." It's just it's, it's not a response. But the New York Times is also changing the tenor of its coverage in a way that I don't think was true 20, 30 years ago. When again, they are always to the left of where I am, and you know, I sat at that Goldberg brunch table and greatly enjoyed the New York Times fashion. <laughs> but but I, I think it seems to have gotten more extreme since then. 
No, I, I think that's, I mean, I think that's obviously true. That's objectively true. I'm just wondering if, you know, since we're going to keep name dropping you all live in part of his argument is that politicians are becoming performers, right? Where they, they use the institutions that they have to shine a light on themselves and make themselves look good rather than actually do what's necessary for the institution. And I, I do think that Trump was a great example of this. Um, and the tendon, it seems to me that the, the, the part of this confusion of media, media criticism for as an alternative to, as a way to defend the president stems from the fact that we have presidents who increasingly want to be pundits who want to comment on the news. I mean, like Biden, that disastrous press conference, he was up there like he was on a very particularly boring episode of McNeil Lair or whatever they call it, News Hour, I guess they call it now. Um, it's like, well, you know, if Putin does this little thing, then we won't do that much. But if he does this big thing, then it's a different story, that kind of stuff. That was punditry, you know, and, and, and Trump did punditry all the time as president and Obama did a lot of it too. And it seems to me if you, if you confuse the presidency as a sort of thing to do social, do political commentary rather than actually you know, run the executive branch, it invites those kinds of criticisms and arguments more. Yeah, I, I would argue that my Bush, George W. Bush, actually didn't do punditry. As he didn't, I and agree that, with that. And, that. and that was one of the things that we actually strove to do. As you know, I helped do the debate prep in 2004, and we had to write his responses. And it was really consciously far away from punditry, because that's just not the role of the president. And I also remember Dana Perino telling me that when she got up there before the podium, Bush would say to her, look, you are representing me when you're up there. And I don't want to hear you criticize the other party. You're not up there to bash people. You're there to present the perspective of the president of the United States. And I think it's a good lesson. I, unfortunately, I think that the subsequent presidents have used that podium for bashing opponents. And you know, maybe one of the reforms we can talk about uh, as a result of this 21st century president is, is maybe have the press room a little bit less of a punditry, partisan politics, boxing gloves up kind of place and more of a, we're going to give you the news. We're going to give you not the news, but the, the perspective of this president and you guys make of it what you will less, le, le, you know, less of kind of a wrestling match. Uh, but this whole conversation suggests that it's not going to be easy to get there. Yeah. I mean, and that's a re that's not a reform of the presidency. That's the reform of the media. And there are very few mechanisms to impose, re you know, reform on the media. All right. So look, we'll change your hat slightly here. Um, you were a HHS guy. You studied the presidency and all that kind of stuff. You wrote a book, um, Shall We Wake the President, about how presidents respond to uh, disasters and crises and whatnot. What is your take on the way Biden has tried to straddle the follow the science versus actually do what is necessary thing? And in particular, you, you have a view on this. Was this guy Eric Lander who was um, kind of, it was kind of fishy about how he was that whole all thing. Anyway, take it where you want to go. All right. So first of all, this morning, our friend Jim Garrity writes in his column, I think it was the, the Omicron surge is over. And this coincided with me getting in the mail, my Biden test, <laughs> I get the test in the mail. It's, I want to say it's completely useless, but I, I shudder to think how many billions of dollars the U S government has spent sending out this test that appears basically after the Omicron surge is over. So I just don't think the government is nimble enough to handle these things. I think I spent a lot of time in the 2000s working on our flu response plan for a variety of reasons, and some of which I'm, gonna, I'm working on an article to discuss. We did not succeed in our COVID response plan. And it's not the fault of Trump. It's not the fault of Biden, per se. It's the fault of this plan that was in place that the career officials were supposed to carry out, and they just did not succeed on multiple levels. And I'm not blaming the careers, per se, just saying there were things that were unique to coronavirus that we were not prepared to deal with. So, for example, we thought that we could detect something abroad better than we could, and we, we didn't. We thought that we could test, track, trace, isolate our way out of a disease, but it's very hard to do that when, A, you don't have tests, and that was a real failing on the part of, of the scientific agencies, and B, when you have asymptomatic spread at a level that was just never anticipated. And then, C, we were expected to have countermeasures to the whatever viral, um, whatever viral agent came our way, 
And we just had nothing in the stockpile to deal with it. So for a variety of reasons, we were just on our back legs the entire time in dealing with this virus. I don't think either president has really covered themselves in glory in dealing with it. And the, the biggest win, I would say, is probably the vaccine. But the whole vaccine war about it is, you know, should you get the vaccine? Should you mandate the vaccine? And I think it became way more political than it should have. So a lot of flaws there. I mean, you, you mentioned this guy, Eric Lander, who is the president's science advisor. They elevated that to cabinet rank, which is relatively unusual. Hmm. And then they just pretty unceremoniously showed him the door because he's a little mean to staff. Maybe maybe the word's not a little. He's mean to staff. I, you know, let, let's figure out the modifier later because we don't have real details on what exactly he did. Alex Thompson is the political reporter who broke the story. And apparently a lot of people complained about his brusque manner with staff and he yelled at people and he demeaned people. Look, I worked in politics for many years. I saw many cruel bosses uh, and I even worked for one. You and I worked at the American Enterprise Institute and I think we can both think of a particular boss who was quite mean. Not, I'm not talking about Ben Wattenberg for anyone nope, who's nope, thinking, but uh, nope. uh, but there was one person who's no longer with us, but who was quite mean to staff. I mean, it, it was it's something that happens in, in the workplace. I don't know what the standard is today. At which point you let a, a boss go for being rough on the staff. I have chapter and verse of great examples of previous presidential aides who were quite mean to staff. And one of my favorite stories is Henry Kissinger yelling at an overworked Lawrence Eagleburger and Eagleburger collapses in nervous exhaustion. And Kissinger is yelling at Eagleburger for this paper. And when Eagleburger does not get the paper, Kissinger steps over his prone body and yells at the next person, where is the paper? (laughs) So I, I don't remember HR coming after Kissinger for what he did there. And in fact, Kissinger was later elevated to Secretary of State, along with being National Security Advisor in that administration. And his tendencies were well known by people, including the Chief of Staff at the time, who was Al Haig, who reported that story about Eagleburger. So there's lots of examples of cruel bosses. It's on both sides of the aisle. I mean, we all know um, Rahm Emanuel, who was Chief of Staff, and uh, I'm not going to use all the bad words he would say, but he did yell at a nervous, stammering staffer once to take the effing tampon out of your mouth and say what you have to say. Uh, (laughs) All of these things, I think, are inappropriate workplace behavior. But the, the question is, what would lead to the dismissal of this guy, Lander, who was the, the president's side advisor, one of the point people in terms of fighting coronavirus, uh, all, by all accounts, a, br- a brilliant guy, but also by all, almost all accounts, a, a very difficult guy. Now, I'm not shedding any tears for Lander. He's got a $45 million net worth and was the rich, richest person in the Biden cabinet. So he'll be fine. But I don't really know what happened there. And I look forward to learning a little bit more about it, what, whether it's just this Biden standard of rude behavior is always remarked upon. But uh, for, for example, we've seen stories about uh, Kamala Harris and her staff, and you know, she's not so nice to staff. And Biden, there was a New York Times report saying that he can be short with aides and hang up on the, on the phone on them. So you know, again, again, I don't understand what the standard is that led to Lander's dismissal. And perhaps if we had more details on what actually happened, we, we could make a better judgment. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, uh, we have a we have a young staff at the Dispatch, and I'm not a mean boss. Steve's, I mean. Steve's kind of a mean boss. No, uh, Steve, no, Steve's not a mean boss. And, um, and so far we haven't run into a lot of that kind of stuff, but you know, in my experience, the expectations of young people generally is, you know, I mean, what's your, what's your name? Um, Kathy Ying. Yeah, it'll come to me. Anyway, there's this woman who writes about, you know, sort of the millennial generations and the, the, there are all of these sort of anecdotes about and some data that that even constructive criticism is read by young people as being yelled at and i would love i would love to think just because it, it 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 jibes with my sort of david shore standing about the problems of the Biden administration that they're be, being held captive by a bunch of young woke kids who are too addicted to twitter and too addicted to sort of campus HR speak and that the guy was basically just tough, but fair and they couldn't handle it. But I don't, I have no idea either whether that's exactly whether that's actually true. And it could be that he really was a monster, but it does seem like tolerance for that kind of stuff for, for tough bosses has plummeted, um, in Washington and just in our lifetimes. I mean, 
I, I could give you chapter and verse about, you know, uh, John McLaughlin of the McLaughlin group, who was not a hugger. Let's just put it that way <laughs> as a boss. I remember um, some of those chapters and some of those verses from years past. And yeah. Our mutual friend who worked there. Yeah. Well, we'll I, I don't want to get anybody in any trouble, but it was anyway. Um, but so on the, on the science thing, right? So like, it seems to me that, you know, one of the problems that we have in our culture generally is, um, on the one hand, everyone wants to undermine the, the faith and confidence in institutions that are in their way. On the other hand, they all want to, and I'm speaking in wildly gross generalizations, uh, they want to outsource responsibility to other institutions for the rules that they set. So Facebook wants the government to regulate it. Um, you have all sorts, you know, all the big corporations loved, not I was like all, but a lot loved Biden's vaccine mandate because it, it took responsibility away from them to get their own staffs vaccinated. Um, and it seems to me that the Biden administration has leaned in for cultural reasons as much as anything else to this notion that they are just following the science when in fact they often weren't that what the science is, is a contested debatable proposition. Um, that if a Congress were running properly, you would have the right sort of balance, which is you would have elected representatives of the people sitting up high and then experts come in with differing points of view. And then the politicians would listen to the various experts and come up with some sort of synthesis to set policy. And now you have a bunch of democratic States who are breaking with the CDC, which is supposed to be this oracular voice of capital T capital S science. And it leaves the Biden administration sort of, uh, you know, playing catch up once again. Um, why can't a, a president say, hey, we're going to listen to the scientists, but we're also going to do what we think is ultimately in the best judgment, you know, best interest of the American people? Well, that would be ideal, uh, to be sure. The whole idea is that listen to the scientists doesn't mean that scientists determine everything. It's that science is a tool that we use to make policy decisions. Uh, unfortunately, when you kind of imbue this oracular sense to these scientific masters and anything they say is the pronunciamento from on high that everyone has to follow. That, that, that's a problem. And, you know, I, I've heard tell of stories of some of these scientists saying, you know, I, I'm the scientist. I can tell you about disease spread rates, but I can't tell you about economic impact. And mm -hmm. the president needs to assess multiple perspectives in order to make wise decisions. And Look, we're obviously in a place where we have trouble with letting a president sit back and listen to different perspectives and, and, and make decisions. So I would like it to see if we could get tone it back a, a little bit. I really did not imagine a disease or some kind of outbreak being as politicized as it became in the last two years. I, I remember a, a great quote by you. Nobody could have anticipated how stupid masks became, right? Or how stupid the debate on masks became. I think that's a that's a pretty smart quote, uh, and it sums up kind of where we've been we where we've been over the last two years. But we're going to need to figure out for future potential outbreaks a better way to approach these things, a better plan, a more resilient response effort, and a series of scientific agencies need to make improvements so that they can do a better job for us in the future. Yeah, I mean, like, if you want to just put on your, you know, grandiose czar for a day science hat, you could come up with all sorts of ways to deal more efficiently with the pandemic, right? If there were no checks and balances, no restraints on power, it's like, okay, everyone, we're going to put everyone infected into a camp, or we're going to weld them into their home, or, or you know, like in Logan's Run, we're going to swing them around from the ceiling and blow them up when they get sick, whatever, right? Like scientists can tell you that stuff, but they can't tell you about the political trade-offs involved and that sure this thing, you know, the sort of what Michael Oakeshott would call politics as the, as the crow flies, right? The sort of Neil deGrasse Tyson rationalia as the ideal society kind of thing. Following this, the scientists is basically saying we are not going to listen to the real world concerns of real people. Um, and the, and the and do anything like a real cost benefit analysis about how we're going to have our optimal policies and um and I don't think Biden has done that. I mean I, I don't you know Biden has put people in camps and they haven't you know and the the vaccine mandate was really stupidly and badly handled. 
Um, but you know, it hasn't been, you know, I, I keep seeing, it's funny. I was writing this thing about the, the Canada trucker protest yesterday and I was going through Nexus looking for quotes. Um, cause I'd heard people, um, you know, kept referring to Trudeau as totalitarian and, um, it turns out lots of people have been calling Biden totalitarian. I was like, look, yeah, really give it a rest. <laughs> if, if, you know, like if you think it is, it's actually, it, it's, it's a moral horror to say that, you know, using OSHA in an ill-advised way to get people vaccinated against a disease that is killing people is akin to, you know, the, the liquidation of, you know, 6 million Ukrainians by Stalin. I mean, like it's not, it's, it's just not totalitarianism. It could be ill-advised. It could be whatever. And, um, but look, I mean, I'm not saying that Biden has, he has not done that, right. He has not, he's not appointed some commissar of science to just ride roughshod over civil society and all that kind of stuff. But it does seem like that he has outsourced um, they, they sort of do this Mont and Bailey stuff where they, they sort of, um, when they want to justify a position that they have or where they want to justify staying in a, um, in a status quo because they're afraid to sort of get ahead, get burned by COVID once again, they claim it's just because they're following the science. And then you have the fact that a bunch of Democrats are getting rid of their mask mandates and you're left with this thing where if you have one definition of what the science is, you're basically saying that a big chunk of your party is anti-science. And I, I, I don't know how Biden sort of gets out of that mess. These Democratic governors are pulling away from the mask mandates because it's unsustainable. And the worst way to display that you have power is to assert that you have power. I have power usually means you don't have the power to do something. I do think they need to back out of it, but I think they're terrified, kind of like what we were talking about earlier, that uh, Biden can't do that kind of break towards the middle because of the way he's views how he runs the government or views his political alliance or views his re-election prospects. But I think they need to find a way to get out of this, to declare endemic state and to say the virus is there, but we have a vaccine, we have treatments for it, and it is not as dangerous as it was two years ago when we had no idea how to deal with it and no countermeasures. And there are all kinds of diseases that are out there and that are deadly that spread person to person, but we know how to deal with them and treat them. And I think we're just going to have to acknowledge that coronavirus in whatever manifestation is entering that stage or has entered that stage. All right, my friend, um, I know you got to go set up for this, this big confab that you're doing. Um, I'm glad to have had you here. Obviously you'll be back because that's the, you know, we have an open invitation to come back. Um, and uh, I hope the whole conference is a smashing success. Thank you. And I hope to do it in person with you next time. All right. So uh, Tevi has left the building um, or the studio or the conversation or whatever. Um, there are a couple of places where I um, brain flatulence um, that hopefully you'll never hear because I just forgot where I was going with something. Um, and uh We'll try to put all the various presidential stuff in the show notes. And um, other than that, I got really sort of nothing new to report, except, you know, we're doing, and we'll put this in the show notes too. We're doing this big, uh, you know, for the people who are on the free list of um, dispatch newsletters, you know, if you get like the Friday G file or um, any of the, or the truncated morning dispatch and all that kind of stuff. We are um, offering a 30-day free trial uh, subscription so you can get a sense of what you're missing. And if you could uh, sign up, that would be wonderful. Uh, it, you know, Not only do we th think that you'd get real value out of it, but you would also uh, be helping us uh, to continue to grow, expand, conquer, um, illuminate, and all sorts of other uh verby type things we're bringing back dispatch live which members will get to see us uh have some cocktails and, and argue with each other about various things and um a lot of new very cool community bells and whistles stuff is coming down the pike uh we got some new newsletters coming uh new podcasts coming um now is a great time for us for you and for the country to uh to give us a whirl and we'll put the link to the free uh 
the 30 day trial thing in the show notes. Um, if you get any of our newsletters, you should probably, any of our free newsletters, you should probably, um, be getting a pitch or have already gotten one. Um, and again, uh, I'm not asking for any charity from anybody. We actually think we're providing great value and we're going to provide even more great value in the months and years to come. And, uh, if you agree with us or if you think, you know, these podcasts are good or any of that kind of stuff and you want to show your support, um, it would be a great way to show your support. It's not a pay, you know, it's not a Patreon thing. It is, it is a, um, it's a real service that we're providing and we want to provide more of it. Um, and we want you to get on board, um, you know, uh, before we achieve new heights of greatness. So with that, uh, thanks again for listening and I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.